If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Pride podcast, we have Dr. Anais Ramiao. She's an academic laryngologist and the current chief of dysphagia and director of new technologies in the Department of Otolaryngology at Weill Cornell Medical College. She has focused her scientific endeavors on the integration of novel technologies and the diagnosis and treatment of voice and swallowing disorders with the ultimate goal of decreasing cost of care, improving accessibility of specialized health services, and detecting pathologies early. Much of her current focus is on the development of a bedside aspiration acoustic screening tool using artificial neural networks and the recognition of the wet voice characteristic of patients with severe deglutitive disorders funded by the National Institute on Aging prestigious Beeson Award. She is also a co-investigator on the voice data generation project of the Bridge to AI initiative of the NIH Common Fund. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Whether you're a new medical SLP entering the world of dysphagia or a seasoned clinician who has served hundreds of patients, AmpCare's effective swallowing protocol is one tool you should have in your clinical care kit. When you become an AmpCare certified SLP, you become equipped with a unique and evidence-based combination of neuromuscular electrical stimulation and exercise science that has been proven to result in improved swallow function for patients across the dysphagia spectrum. 
check out www.swallowtherapy.com. That's www.swallowtherapy.com to learn more and become the go-to SLP for dysphagia therapy. Good afternoon, Anais. Good afternoon, Teresa. Really nice to uh, meet you and be here today. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so I'm so excited to have you on. I love when social media meets real life podcasting. So yay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so tell the people a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, my name is Anais Ramo. I'm a laryngologist and uh, my specialty is actually uh, swallowing evaluation and treatment. I did my fellowship back in 2016 with Peter Belavsky at UC Davis. Um, so I really focused on dysphagia pretty early on in my training and uh, have been now at Wild Cornell for the past six years. And I've started the first official multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic here uh, in New York City. Um, so it's been now, um, you know, four years that I've been working with a team of speech pathologists uh, more, more regularly. And uh, I'll be happy to talk about that today. Oh, awesome. All right. Yeah. So let's let's dive in. Where should we start? Um, well, we can first start about um, uh, talking about the multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic. Uh, we're definitely not the first ones to have developed that model. So I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, you know, the multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic um, ha- was first described at Johns Hopkins in the 1980s. Um, it really uh, was a combination of multiple specialties. And the reason that clinic came about was the realization that people with um, swallowing dysfunction were, you know, some, sometimes directed to the wrong teams and would get lost into the healthcare system and just not end up getting any effective treatment. And that oftentimes the expertise of many uh, different specialists would need to be brought together in order to offer the best care for patients. Um, and so that model is actually really the, the gold standard and what kind of defined the history of the multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic. And I'll define a little bit more multidisciplinarity as opposed to uh, interdisciplinarity yeah. and transdisciplinarity as we talk. So multidisciplinarity is when you have different specialists who come together, provide their own expertise to the patient, uh, and that's in contrast with interdisciplinarity when the specialists come together and then they also reach a consensus. So they're not just giving their opinion. They're actually trying to formulate um, a consensus, you know, assessment and treatment plan. And then there is really the ideal, which is transdisciplinarity. And that's when uh, you have multiple specialists coming together, but they really try to examine the problem across boundaries of discipline and have more of an integrated approach that doesn't really fall within specific disciplines. So that's kind of the goal, you know, that's the ideal, that's what we should be moving towards. And, you know, there, there have been attempts in the literature, I mentioned the Johns Hopkins um, approach, which I think was the closest in the United States to that transdisciplinary approach. There have been also other um, descriptions. Um, Heather Starmer definitely has been a great contributor in this space, She's written quite a bit on multidisciplinarity and swallowing assessment. And uh, certainly her work at both Johns Hopkins and Stanford have been really critical in kind of describing this approach. She most recently has started, I don't know if it's active right now, but she has had um, a swallowing, multidisciplinary swallowing center at Stanford where she was combining her work with a laryngologist and a gastroenterologist. So a very unique model. 
Um, the plan, the, the setup was that the patient would come in the morning, uh, get a video fluoroscopy, and then in the afternoon, they would get an evaluation uh, with all three specialists, and they would first get uh, fees, and uh, then a transnasal cephagoscopy, and then a discussion among the specialists would occur with a plan to follow up with one or, or a few, a few of them. So she's really contributed. And then internationally, there have been other descriptions of the multidisciplinary clinic that includes McGill University. And actually, that's where I went from medical school. So uh, in Canada, in Montreal, where uh, for the now, for the past 20 years, almost a multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic has been in place that combines speech pathology, uh, nutrition and, and laryngology. And that's been a very you know, robust program that's been ongoing and, you know, serving the population of Quebec and, you know, oftentimes with benefits from having this expertise with diet modification, exercises recommended and potentially surgery, which is still a minority of patients. And then finally, I'll, I'll mention the gold standard again, like the ideal, what we should be moving towards, but um, not easy to potentially organize in in the U.S. Uh, and that's the Japanese model. And uh, I'm really uh, grateful uh, to the team at Fujita Health University. Uh, Yoko Inamoto is uh, one of the speech pathologists who's well known in that group, who really have been sharing their expertise on their de- transdisciplinary approach. And that transdisciplinary approach is very unique to Japan. It really combines the expertise of specialists we don't typically see in the dysphagia space in the U.S., including dentists, physiatrists, dental assistants, nurses, speech pathologists, obviously, and then a much smaller role for otolaryngology. So otolaryngology is really the surgical component, and that's their real focus is really on that. So um, that's really a transdisciplinary approach. I've seen it. I've uh, had a chance to visit uh, that hospital a couple of times, and I'm going there actually in, in two weeks, where, um, you know, you'll have a really broad team of specialists come to the bedside of the patient. They'll uh, really do a thorough assessment on a regular basis, have measurements across disciplines that they use for research afterwards, and, you know, interestingly, again, the dentists are heavily involved because there's been a strong recognition in Japan that oral health and oral function is really critical for swallowing. And I think that maybe not as strong in the U.S. overall. Um, and so it's a very unique exper- expertise. And I think we have a lot to learn from the Japanese since they're, you know, overall the oldest society. Uh, they really suffer a lot from the burden of swallowing dysfunction. It's a big burden in their society, especially with stroke. And so I think that we have to, uh, a lot to learn from their approach because it's really a public health approach. Dentists are widely available. They do fees, which is very interesting. So that's kind of the ideal transdisciplinary approach to uh, to me. Interesting. Talk to me a little bit about this. This might be sort of flipping everything upside down, but who is sort of the ideal patient to go to one of these clinics? Because I think, you know, is it anybody that presents with swallowing troubles? Is it a specific population that we're looking for? Is there specific characteristics of a patient that we would say, okay, you you should just go see an SLP or you should just go see a laryngologist or no, you need to come see the whole team. I'm curious what that patient selection looks like. Yeah, so uh, right now we're not really discriminating patients. So, you know, we offer everyone to see both a speech pathologist and and a, a laryngologist during their first clinic visit if they're uh, their main 
presentation is for dysphagia. You know, an ideal patient, I will say we see a number of them here at Wild Cornell would be patients with myositis because there is really value for intervention from both disciplines. And so, and actually also from GI and, and nutrition. And so uh, those patients are really very complex. So they really require, you know, several brains to be put together to establish a plan. Certainly there's a big need for rehabilitation, but there are often also surgical interventions that are needed. CP bars are very common in this patient population. So interventions such as dilation and CP myotomies um, are very effective, but also, um, you know, medialization of the vocal fold because we also see some atrophy. And we have a unique uh, focus on the larynx because I'm involved in the team and we've also shown previously in research that glottic insufficiencies uh, impacting cough efficiency. So because we don't just focus on aspiration, but we look also at cough, we do take into account uh, vocal fold health and uh, atrophy. And so medialization is something that we may also offer to those patients. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the financial viability of this model. Sure. So, um, you know, that's a really uh, great point. Uh, I will say that uh, I'm a little bit unique as a laryngologist because I'm NIH funded. And so um, I have uh, less of a pressure to generate revenue. So, you know, it's okay for me to see Medicare patients, for instance, and uh, also to have longer visits with the patients. Uh, so that's, that's very unique to, to my practice. And that maybe limits the generalizability of, of this model for e- ENT specifically. But, you know, there are multiple sources of revenue. The nice thing is that when we work together uh, during the same visit, we can do multiple things. We often will examine the larynx, so either using flexible laryngoscopy or stroboscopy if we're concerned about glottic insufficiency or other pathologies. And then uh, my colleague, and I should name her Valentina Mocchetti, who's really wonderful, um, who has been now for with us for four years, she will perform uh, a flexible uh, endoscopic evaluation of swallowing fees. And we also have now uh, Dr. James Curtis with us. So, you know, this is also a great opportunity for him to participate, but also interns who are spending time with him and now a clinical fellow you know, so those are these sources of revenue. And then uh, we'll think about, you know, interventions, be it rehabilitation, or sometimes, you know, further uh, evaluation is needed, like a transnasal esophagoscopy, high resolution manometry, which we have in our clinic, which we sometimes combine also with pharyngeal manometry if needed for patients and provide biofeedback that way. There is also opportunity for doing office uh, injection laryngoplasty or office dilation of the esophagus. So those are all uh, streams of revenue. It's a, it's a demanding, you know, setup in that we have to have a coordinator who's familiar with how to set up appointments uh, with the understanding that some patients will maybe need more than 30 minutes, you know, an hour, sometimes an hour and a half is needed if we're doing um, manometry, both esophageal and pharyngeal. We also have, uh, you know, a number of trainees who really help us uh, with making the clinic more efficient, but also are involved in the assessment and intervention. So they, they get to learn. Uh, but, you know, it is it, it is a complex enterprise and 
definitely as we think about, you know, the future, your population are aging, there's going to be more of a need for dysphagia evaluation and treatment. How do we move from what we have, which is, you know, in New York City, you know, we're in a privileged place, we have a lot of resources. How do you make this widely available to the broader population is definitely something we need to figure out. Yeah. Talk to me about a little bit about like the the logistics of it all happening, right? So a patient comes in and and like you said, you know, you might, they might need this or they might need that. And you're not sure. Do you sort of just figure out a way to get them at all the assessments they need that day? Or might they come back a different day when the whole team is present? And then I thank you for, for appreciating the difference between multidisciplinary inter and, and transdisciplinary. But then does the team come together at the end of the day and, and, you know, sort of, like you said, with interdisciplinary, they come to a consensus, but with multi, do you guys, you know, discuss each other's findings or things like that? Or is it just all individually, you know, each profession sends their reports and yeah, I'm just curious what that looks like. Yeah. So we are actually uh, together with the patient throughout the clinic visit, um, which has its efficiencies and inefficiencies. Um, so typically a new patient will be scheduled for 30 minutes, but there is some flexibility. So, um, you know, because we're two, one of us can leave the room and, and come back. Uh, but the patient will come in, we'll have them fill up uh, patient-reported outcome measures. And so we'll have that uh, as a baseline. We also have some information about their past medical history. And then uh, we'll do uh, a history together. So we make sure we gather information that's relevant to, uh, you know, both specialties. And then if needed, uh, Valentina may uh, do a, a bedside swallow evaluation. That's not so common. Oftentimes what we'll do is uh, basically do either a laryngoscopy or stroboscopy, evaluate the laryngeal functions. And then following that, we do a flexible evaluation of swallowing um, and those, uh, fees. And so based on that, we already have a lot of information uh, as to what might be the problem. We can know whether there's an issue with the larynx or is it, you know, a pharyngeal uh, swallowing dysfunction or is it possible that it's pharyngoesophageal or esophageal? So it helps us decide what the next plan will be. So after this physical examination and instrumental evaluation, and now we use phases to do uh, the fees evaluations, we come together and, you know, have a discussion with the uh, patient and often their family care, uh, their caretakers and tell them, you know, based on our evaluation, this is what we suspect. We probably will recommend uh, through horoscopy as a next step, either MBS or uh, esophagram or, you know, referral to GI or come back to clinic for manometry or, you know, maybe a surgery is needed, uh, thyroplasty. I mean, to give you examples, we had a patient who came in once. He was a younger patient in his 50s who came with solid food dysphagia for the past, you know, several couple of months that was getting a little worse. We did uh, stroboscopy and fees. Everything was normal. So we suspected it was uh, more of um, a esophageal problem. So um, he hadn't eaten uh, that that day yet. So I got to do a TNE during that visit. And we found, you know, a distal esophageal uh, mass that was biopsied. Oh, goodness. Uh, so this is really a streamlined way of evaluation, swallow, evaluating swallowing dysfunction. Fortunately, that's not a common story, but the good thing is that, you know, we can rule out a lot of things during that visit and maybe focus more on when it's more evaluation. Um, 
And that really limits the number of visits that the patient may have to do. And it's more environmentally friendly and just less overwhelming to patients. And I will say that sometimes as a surgeon, I feel like I may not spend enough time explaining things to patients. So Valentina is very good at explaining things in a way that um, makes sense. And, you know, sometimes repeating the information is also very, very helpful. And I may forget something, she'll remember and vice versa. So uh, we also are now focusing a lot on cough um, strength and cough efficiency, how to improve that, but also oral health. So, you know, having the ability to talk to each other and trying to learn from each other, but also making sure that we're not missing something helps us grow as a team and add some elements that are not typical in the evaluation of swallowing. So, and I think we're also more happy working together than working on our own. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, it's fascinating to me. I had a patient, gosh, it was a few weeks ago and I went in, uh, he was scheduled for a modified and I just went in to, to show up to do his modified barium soil study and the radiology tech said, you know, I, I might ask you to come back in a little bit. The, you know, his referring doctor scheduled him for like four different tests in a row and he was scheduled for like a neck ultrasound. Like there was just a whole, nothing really made sense. And I was like, what's going on? And, the, and they said, well, they suspected a mass in his neck. So he just said, order any test that would look in that area. <laughs> and so I just was thinking to myself, like, okay, I need more information here, but also like, if only there was a more streamlined, you know, clinic or place that he could go to because he was coming to our radiology suite. Then he was going across the street to the imaging center. Then he was going there. He was, he had four appointments that day and they were in four different like parts of the campus. So the poor guy got so confused and I just, I was like, there has to be an easier way for this poor man to get some answers today. So I'm glad we're talking about this because I, I, I'm like, this, this is what this man needed. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had a very similar patient actually a couple of weeks ago who, who came and, you know, he had severe dysphonia, but his complaint was dysphagia. And um, we did, you know, stroboscopy and he had a vocal fold paralysis. Uh, we did a fees and he had instances of aspiration. So he was told to do a head turn chin tuck. Um, and then he was scheduled for an XCT that same day and was found to have an esophageal mass. So, you know, it's really helpful because, again, we just accelerate the assessment. And, you know, again, I think it's a little bit of a luxury still to have this type of model. Unfortunately, I, I don't know how to make it more widely available. And so that's a good question for the community. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I think just awareness of it, right? Like that this is what we can do, you know, collectively all together. This is, you know, how it might, you know, could be financially viable for some facilities and just overall more convenient for patients. So I think sometimes if you just bring awareness to something and put enough smart people together, they can somehow figure it out, you know, try to try to work towards making it happen. So yeah, thank you for, for sharing all this. I will say that there is one more thing I wanted to point out and yeah. it's, uh, you know, we have the luxury of uh, having Valentina and myself in the same office. So we work, we can work together on a regular basis, but oftentimes with, multidisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity, you really need to coordinate uh, schedules of different providers. And oftentimes that's a limiting factor because, you know, people have different schedules, they're in different locations. So bringing people together can can be a barrier. But uh, again, the advantage of working to that together is, you know, in a period where burnout is really big in healthcare providers, 
working together really provides a lot of satisfaction. And, you know, I, I will emphasize that, that, you know, that's the benefits, the organizational benefit that you might have less attrition of uh, healthcare staff over the long term. Yeah, I, I love that. I feel like that's not talked about enough, but it's always, I always feel very invigorated when I work with other professionals or other doctors will say, you know, like, oh, I love that you, you know, did that or, or I learned something from them too. And it just it really reinvigorates that passion, I think, and why we got into patient care. So thank you for saying that. I think that's a, a strong point. And then one more thing in that regards, I, I will just say that trainees also really benefit. So for, you know, an academic center like ours, um, you know, we, we have uh, residents, fellows, interns from speech pathology, but also a, a clinical fellow who will be starting in October. So it's really beneficial from a trainee standpoint. So they get to learn this model and potentially disseminate it. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. Okay. I'm going to ask you the million dollar question, Denise. Okay. So we talked about different models, different professionals. If you could put together your dream team of, of multidisciplinary specialists for this, who else would you involve? So I definitely think that, uh, you know, nutrition is huge. Ideally, that should be included in a dysphagia, a multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic. I think there are a lot of uh, differences and nuances in the focus from speech pathology and nutrition. Um, you know, speech pathology is much more focused on texture, whereas uh, nutrition might be more uh, focused on health uh, contents of food. So, you know, vitamins, proteins. And so it's a very different focus. And as a result, I think that you know, sometimes we do not think about the best uh, nutritional support for our patients because we don't have that expertise available in our clinics. I will say also learning from our Japanese colleagues, dentists would be really terrific. So we have so many patients who have tongue weakness and um, tongue atrophy. And for instance, the uh, our Japanese colleagues will offer uh palatal prosthesis uh, that really helps reduce the dead space in the mouth and help uh, increase efficiency in the oral cavity. And we're, yeah, we're in New York City and we've had a few patients with that problem. And it's very hard for us to find a dentist with that expertise. And I think that if they spent a little bit of time with us, they would see that, you know, there is a huge value in their input. And of course, I think there's a, a revenue stream because prosthesis are, you know, revenue generating so um so I think that that would be really critical and we have so many patients with poor oral care and Valentina and I are not necessarily equipped to really tell them what they need to do so we tell them to go to their dentist um so that that would be really great and then we we talk to our gas, colleagues in gastroenterology regularly we have an esoph- esophageal case conference but I think that if you had someone who could come at least on a uh, monthly basis and tell our patients about what they can provide, you know, especially with new innovations in GI, like the endoflip technology, which is not quite the same as manometry, but can be done in a more comfortable way than manometry. And then a lot of interventions can be done now uh, under sedation with uh, EGD. I think that that would be the, the ideal team. And then, you know, a really dedicated um, care coordinator who, you know, would maybe push us on the scholarship side as well. Awesome. Let, let me ask you a, a specific question to you. So my understanding is is that laryngologists, ENPs can do TNEs, the transnasal esophagoscopies. And then you're also talking about doing manometry too. I think that's an area 
I was confused with, I was thinking that TNEs and manometry were only done by GIs, but you're saying that that's within your scope of practice. So uh, that's a little bit of a unique result of having trained with uh, Peter Belovsky and you yeah. and UC Davis. You know, over there, the otolaryngology team is extremely involved in esophageal care in a way that very few places have that. Uh, you know, historically, the esophagus was really uh, the domain of ENTs. Um, so Chevalier Jackson, who's the father of uh, bronchoesophagology, was the one who innovated and created uh, digital lighting for uh, the rigid esophagoscope and laryngoscopes. So that allowed to finally explore the esophagus and retrieve a lot of foreign bodies, diagnose cancer. Um, so it wasn't until really the uh, 70s and 80s when uh, fiber optic uh, technology was invented and flexible scopes became available that GI took off and, you know, also general surgery, thoracic surgery are doing a lot of EGDs. Um, and TNE, though it was developed by Reza Shakir and who's a gastroenterologist himself, really became more uh, the interest of otolaryngologists because that we're um, used to doing office procedures. This is really doable for us. For um, GIs, I think that, you know, they have access to the endoscopy suite. That's where they spend a lot of their time. So for them, it's just more efficient. And then to be honest, the esophagoscope has uh, the, the transoral one has uh, bigger channels. There are more tools that are available. Uh, the optics are slightly improved, uh, you know, are overall better. They, they have things like narrowband imaging, which is very helpful for detection of Barrett's esophagus uh, that are not available with the TNE. So though they've been noted to be equivalent for detection of Barrett's esophagus, for instance, um, I would say that definitely the uh, EGD may have some um, bigger range of, you know, possibilities than the TNE. The value of the TNE is, for instance, I have patients who are often much older. Uh, they have a lot of comorbidities, so they can't really undergo sedation. So I can at least offer them the TNE in the clinic. And it's very, uh, you know, it's well tolerated. It takes about 10, 15 minutes. There is expertise that needs to be built. And, you know, a lot of um, ENTs, unfortunately, don't get the expertise of doing TNEs regularly. In my training, that was very common. I did hundreds of them. So I became very familiar and comfortable. But you, you need to be comfortable with the exam. So I have colleagues who do TNE mostly as a screening measure. But I don't think they have really, you know, the ability to, you know, make diagnosis or be comfortable with their findings. Um, so, you know, it's it's interesting. I think TNE is a great technology, but because few otolaryngologists really use it, there is a little bit of an attrition in the use of the TNE scopes. And actually, um, Olympus and and Pentax always wonder whether they should continue making them. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I was sure. that was all news to me. So awesome. Thank you. That's that's very valuable. I think. That, that's a hard part of being an SLP if you don't have exposure to, you know, working with other disciplines very frequently. So I think sometimes we automatically think the referral should go right to GI. And it's very helpful to know, you know, if it is somebody that has multiple comorbidities that they can't undergo, you know, an EGD or something that you would be able to offer them a TNE. So awesome. Thank you for that. Sure. You know, again, I think there is a lot of value in multidisciplinarity, um, a lot of satisfaction on the patient side, on the team side. 
Um, there's also, you know, a lot of scholarship opportunities. I think that it helps you think beyond your field and really break the boundaries. And, and for us, definitely it has led to, uh, collaborations. You know, Valentina came with really stellar training, but she never really was involved in scholarship. And so now she got to present two, three times at DRS, you know, She's working right now on on her first paper as a first author, where she'll be looking at transitional foods and uh, the, the swallow efficiency of those foods uh, based on fees. So, um, so I think there is really a, a lot of benefits. I think long term we need to think about how to make this more efficient and widely available. But overall, I think that because it decreases costs on the patient side and potentially increases revenue opportunities on, on the medical side, it should be doable, but it has to be thought out in a way that can be generalized. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Do you have any resources you could pass along if people are interested in, in sort of learning how to explore this more? I think you mentioned a few, you know, papers or models that really inspired you to run with this. Yeah, sure. I'm happy uh, to share a few references. I I can send that to you. And Okay, perfect. Yeah, we'll stick those in the show notes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Anais. This was so wonderful and and so lovely chatting with you. Do you have any any final thoughts to wrap it up? The one final thought is um, I think that it's also helpful from a speech pathology side to be partnered with an MD because sometimes you know, communication across disciplines is a little bit difficult, especially from non-MD to MD. So I think that it's helpful to have an advocate on the MD side. So I will say that that's definitely something we've benefited from. And we're recognized now in the tri-state area in New York, uh, in New York that, um, you know, we're providing excellent care and, you know, Valentina's voice is heard very well among the uh, medical community because we've worked together and because, you know, I've advocated for her perspective. So I will say that that's also a very important point. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, sure. All right. Pleasure to meet you, Teresa. Thank you so much for all your work and, you know, sharing all this education with or Friends and colleagues, I've, you know, I was recently actually in Slovakia and somebody told me, do you know, uh, Swallow Your Pride podcast? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so you're very wide to listen to. So awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. For, and, and it's only because I have wonderful people that are willing to come on and share. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And that's our wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.